0: Global Capital Podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the Frequent Issuer's Managing Editor. And I'm John Hay, Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. Uh, The podcast has reached a milestone this week, John. This is our 100th episode. Now, isn't that amazing? No. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh yes, and to and to celebrate, we've put together a hundred minute long compilation of some of our favorite films, <laughs> ours, pregnant pauses, you know's, and other interruptions from the last two years mm. as a special treat for our audience. Mm. Um <laughs> And as a second treat, we've got a double helping of George's this week. We'll be talking later to George Collard, our senior emerging markets reporter, about the investment case for Turkey, after some interesting developments there this week, and to George Smith, our European securitization reporter, about the revival of uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities and what that means. But first, the G20 has been meeting in India this week and has decided to have another tilt at getting multilateral development banks, institutions such as the World Bank, uh, to lend more and presumably borrow more in the capital markets. Can you uh, bring us up to date, John, with what, what they've said? Because this isn't, isn't a new idea, is it? But it's, it's certainly a renewed push.
2: Yeah, it is very interesting at the moment in the world of multilateral development banks like the World Bank, International Finance Corporation, Asian Development Bank and so on. Um, they are obviously pillars of the capital markets and have been for many decades. Um, but they, they're a sort of the, the, the cha- you know, the, as a sector and as a group, they, they haven't really changed much. They're, they're sort of very consistent. Um, uh, you know, that's part of their appeal, of course, to bond investors is, is their stability, uh, the fact that they're backed by international treaties. Um, and, and they're, you know, the big ones are A rated but you know beneath the surface there's there's obviously uh, you know a lot of pressure and anxiety around them because of the the importance of the work they do and they and it's particularly sort of severe at the moment because of the grievous pressures on many developing countries from the pandemic there's the war in russia ukraine which is affecting food supplies and of course climate change which just gets worse year by year and it's causing all kinds of disasters so there's there's enormous clamour for the multilateral development banks to do more, to lend more, and sort of essentially get bigger, and the question is, can this very stable and sort of almost static system actually deliver that?
1: Yeah, these are institutions that carry AAA uh, credit ratings; they're the very, very sort of best of the best in terms of credit risk, if, uh, and mm. and that allows them to borrow very cheaply on the capital markets, which they can lend on. The proceeds to, uh, you know, developing countries who would not be able to borrow that money, anywhere near as cheaply themselves, Uh, and of course, that requires them to have a very sort of financially conservative policy to how they run their their balance sheets and uh, how they manage their capital. Um, And of course, what this, I guess, what this lends itself to is the fact that their their sort of greatest strength, which is their credit strength, is also something of a weakness, and that becomes quite prohibitive for them to do more and more and more. Without thinking that they're going to be risking that AAA rated status and their standing in the bond market, so, so what is it that um, the G20 is? I mean, what's the method by which the G20 is suggesting that these institutions can can raise more money?
2: Yeah, well, there are lots of methods that that that, that, that are going to be examined and and sort of explored, but I think the the central point is that the the MDBs are excessively conservative re- with respect to their ratings, right? Now, if you talk to some of the um, people from the MDBs over the last year since this really sort of blew up as an issue, um, they 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 often say, oh, you know, these people just want us to imperil our AAA rating and that's not a good idea. But in fact, that's not what any of these development experts are actually saying. Um, what they're arguing is that within the AAA ratings, there's room for them to lend a lot more um, even with the same amount of capital and without imperiling their ratings. And there, there are a number of complicated reasons for that to do with the financial structure of the MDBs. But the essential point is that it's a lack of communication between the rating agencies, the MDBs and their shareholders, which are national governments. None of them fully understand the problem. Most of them sort of have a bit of understanding, but they don't. There is no real natural forum for them to talk about this. The rating agencies are not there to kind of advise the MDBs and, and help them. They're there just to give an independent view on credit risk. And so, even though S and P, for example, does give sort of very clear hints in its rating reports on, for example, the World Bank that there is a lot of rating headroom, as it's called, that the World Bank could lend a, a, a great deal more and keep its AAA rating they still don't do it and it's partly from fear of the rating agencies it's partly from fear of sort of some extremely unlikely disaster that could um if they did expand their balance sheets cause their ratings to come under pressure it's also from fear of the of the shareholders themselves and no none of the mdb's ever want to offend their shareholders um which are the governments so and and then the governments though don't really understand the problem because it's you know typically it's civil servants Sitting on the boards of these MDBs, and they, you know, they get rotated every three or five years, and, and there's not really proper governance. So, the effort now is to really tackle all of that.
1: I can understand the uh, the sort of oh, how can I put it? The I wouldn't say disinterest, but um, certainly the sort of one step remove type nature of the of the shareholders, in that it's um, mm. something they're not quite directly especially i guess because you know part of the key shareholders are from the developed countries that don't really benefit so much from the from the work that the the mdb's do the ratings agency point is quite an interesting one um because i guess it raises the question of whether the rating agencies should or could make their methodologies more transparent and whether there should be something of a sort of rating sandbox where um, you know the MDBs could test because they all have their own different sort of setup and their own capital models, really. And I mean, they could go and sort of test whether um, particular changes to how they manage their capital or raise different amounts of capital or via different methods, how that would change the rating before they actually committed to doing it in real life. And you know if they were genuinely scared of losing yeah. their AAA-rated status. Is there any any sort of discussion about anything like that?
2: yes and i think this is the sort of thing that is going to happen i mean basically it uh there was a report a, a year ago commissioned by the g20 called the capital Adequacy framework um report um or similar um which really changed the game um and and you had there some people who have been working on this issue quietly for many years uh finally managed to get it to the surface and uh sort of and and that report has been very influential it was talked about a lot at the imf and world bank meetings last year the great uh, crucial supporter uh that they've got on their side is janet yellen the u.s treasury secretary who totally gets it and supports this um and uh, you know so w- the, the momentum in favor of it has been building and a, a lot of the mdbs are initially very cautious and you know, even sort of slightly hostile behind the scenes to this mm. agenda, mm. but they are now getting very much on board. And uh, there's a new president at the World Bank, AJ Banger, who um, sort of was brought in by Yellen, and so is totally on the same page. So uh, it's clear that the whole system is now. Uh, on the verge of change in, in a much more real way than it has been. And this G20 report this week, uh, it's India's the president of the G20 this year. They, they commissioned another report, which, you know, some people thought, oh, you know, not another report, but you know, it's, 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 it's very punchy. Um, and it's, it goes beyond the capital adequacy framework One, it's much broader in scope It's looking at the whole MDB system as a system and really, you know, are they equal to the development needs we have? Which is absolutely the right question to be asking. You know that is what it's fundamentally about. Um, and they they think that there's three trillion dollars of spending needed uh, annually by by the time we get to twenty thirty to uh, tackle development. You know severe development challenges, including climate change. And you know at the moment um, the, the MDBs are nowhere near that scale. Not all of it has to come from them, but. They think about a sixth or $500 billion of extra spending needs to come basically from development finance. And that's a huge hill to climb.
1: $500 billion extra, so, um, extra per year. So how much are they doing at the moment?
2: I did a little tot up uh, yesterday of s- some of the big uh, MDBs. Now, these are not the whole sector by any means, but they, are, they do include some of the big ones, which is the World Bank Group as a whole. Uh, which dispersed $67 billion uh, in its last reported year. The Asian Development Bank, $20 billion. Inter-American Development Bank, $12 billion. And the African Development Bank, three and a half. Now, if you add all that up, it's um, $102 billion or so. And the G20 report is saying that the MDBs should be doing $260 billion of funding between them as a whole sector every year on top of what they're doing. So that's two and a half times what those five or six are doing at the moment. So it's really a vast expansion of the sector. And, you know, this is going to need, um, you know, a whole panoply of solutions to to make it possible.
1: Do we have a sense of whether or not um, there are more applications for funding made to the development banks than they are meeting? That is to say, mm. is the demand already there for the loans because i you know i've spoken to some uh, treasury officials at these institutions before, and they say, well we 're already lending you know sort of everything we can, or they sort of suggest that there was no no sort of surplus of demand for for their loans I, and I, i'm never quite sure um, yeah. to what extent that's true
2: well, this is a, an excellent question, and I think' it's, you know one of the very central questions in in this whole this whole discussion. Um, you know, is it pushing on a string, right? If we, if, if, if more money is, is shoved into them, do they, do they have places to put it? And I think, um, the answer to that is complex. And if you talk to people in, in the, in the sector, they, you know, they have a a lot to say about it, but it's, there's no simple answer to that. I think the first thing is, um, to acknowledge that, that it definitely is a problem. You, it's not just throwing money at it, right, and the money will instantly be sucked into wonderful projects, right? Structuring uh, efficient bankable investments in emerging markets that do good to the country and aren't white elephants and don't have unintended consequences is pretty difficult. Hmm. And you need a lot of things to go right. You need the policy environment in the country to to be good, the, the government to be sensible, you need, um, sort of some visibility on on economic development prospects in future and so on and um for all of that you need staff so so one of the important things is the the mdbs if they're to grow as a you know financially they'll need a lot more staff as well to you know be on the ground in these countries and help look for opportunities um it's it's not that there's um You know they lend to the best one out of 20 applications and the the other 19 are just waiting there you know perfect but but unfunded you know it very much is these projects have to be created and you know so that that is a big work that needs to be done as well
1: well it's interesting you mentioned the the sort of staff level um <laughs> uh, while 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 the g20 sort of commissioning reports on the mdb system as a whole i mean i spoke to a very well-placed uh, source who has a very good understanding of um how supranational uh, treasuries are managed and run and yeah. he said it was uh possibly boiled down to a matter of incentives his his view was that the the, the treasurers within these institutions are not really incentivized to push on uh, their you know a sort of a more liberal deployment of capital. They, they manage with their capital within a a, a barrier and um, mm-hmm. if they stay towards the safe end of that, then nobody complains and there's no risk of uh, yep. a financial disaster rating. but he said if they if they were to push it and you know really stretch what they can do, There's absolutely no upside if it goes at all for them. And at the same time, if it goes wrong, they're out of a job, Um, which sounds sort of quite mundane, really, when you think about it. But these are the sort of, you know, real sort of human problems for individuals in these jobs, aren't they? Absolutely, that's exactly
2: what's been happening. It's not really the treasurers, in fact, for in, when it comes to uh, you know the the capital issues, it's the, but it would be the chief risk officers of of all these uh, MDBs that really sort of control um, that as, that side of things. But but it's them and their boards, you know, and the the presidents or CEOs of of, of the banks um the these managers that they are entrusted with what they see as a sacred trust and it is you know to look after this institution that's been bequeathed to them to keep it healthy keep it out of scandal you know um keep it you know fulfilling its mission but that doesn't really uh, lead you to take a lot of risk Mm. right It, it makes you risk averse and um and everybody knows that if there's if there's a slightest scandal all the shareholders will be at the next uh, annual meeting. Will be sort of wrapping the table and and complaining and saying, you know, why why have you uh, sort of taken our capital and uh, invested in this bad project or kind of embarrassed us in this way, you know? And and there the MDBs are sort of caught in a in a in a kind of trap between very powerful, very political shareholders and. Um and a very sort of technical job, which they have to do to to a very high standard of perfection, really. And and at the same time, they're dealing with very risky, complex environments in developing countries where things do go wrong.
1: Um well what are the prospects for for change in this regard? I mean it, it it's it seems to have taken a long time to get the MDBs to I guess come round to this way of thinking. Um when are they all about to start? You know, doing more in the capital markets. Um, I think it, it will happen. I mean, one of the things that's that's
2: um, you know, one sort of for people in our markets really exciting is hybrid capital, right? Which is subordinated debt, which is obviously issued an enormous amount by commercial banks and and to some extent by cor- corporations. Um, but, you know, the idea of hybrid capital for multilateral development banks would have seemed outlandish about, you know, four or five years ago. Yep. Um, but it, it really is going to happen. Um, uh, we got, uh, last year, uh, Bank West African de Développement. got as far as having a deal rated. They nearly brought it to market, but market conditions weren't great. Uh, another African development bank called trade and development bank nearly brought a deal again market conditions put it off the african development bank has structured a deal they were are probably going to bring it maybe this year maybe next the world bank has now said it's going to work on structuring hybrid capital so this is going to create a whole new asset class which is i mean something that investors and investment banks will be super excited about and the idea is to sort of be able to issue capital which will be risk-bearing but without going to the shareholders you know just to Ask for more equity, which they're always so kind of difficult about giving.
1: Yeah, All right. Well, we'll watch that with uh, with with rapt interest to see how that develops. Um, in the meantime, though, we spoke to George Collard and George Smith about Turkey and the revival of commercial mortgage backed securities. <laughs> Welcome, Georges, to the Global Capital Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Hello, oh, it's a pleasure. Um, now, uh, George, or well, Mr. Collard, let's, let's let's call you that for um, purposes of uh, easy identification, and obviously the um, high levels of respect in which we we hold you both. Um, the UAE is uh, said to be providing eight and a half billion dollars worth of earthquake bonds, uh, for Turkey. Um, that's interesting. Uh, now a bit of recent history, uh, Turkey has had a somewhat sort of, um, colorful time, uh, of late. It's had years of rampant inflation over 80% for some periods last year. Uh, in February, it suffered two earthquakes, uh, between 50,000 and 60,000 people dead in, um, Turkey and Syria, and about $84 billion worth of damage. Then it had an election in May, where uh, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan um, retained his job, uh, and that was significant because he's responsible for years of what's viewed as unorthodox economic policy that's driven this um, period of inflation. But then the bonds bonds rallied, Turkey's bonds rallied this week. Now, why was that?
3: This week, the rally has been driven by this deal with the UAE, which it's an investment package worth over 50 billion, and that includes the 8.5 billion of earthquake bonds. It's it's across all sorts of industries and, and markets, it, for example, cooperation between the relevant state-owned energy companies or industry ministries. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, there there's the earthquake bonds, which is interesting because it's something that had been talked about, according to some investors, since the earthquakes happened in discussions between the Turkish debt management team and and foreign investors about whether that was something they could do. It, it might save Turkey, um, uh, uh, give them a bit of a benefit in terms of pricing when they do sell new bonds. For example, there would be that sort of sympathy element, um, but none have materialized. This is the first time there's been any concrete commitment to doing earthquake relief bonds.
1: Yeah, I mean, let's just set this in context. Um, how much funding does Turkey have to do this year, like pre-earthquake, and how much has it done so far?
3: So t- is the target, and they've done hmm. seven point five billion. Um, so it's it's a significant amount. It's nearly their entire normal um, needs on the bond market. So they're doing they're effectively nearly doubling it.
1: Right, right. And do we have any details of what these earthquake bonds are going to be? Who's issuing them? Who they're going to be sold to, and uh, or anything really?
3: Not really. the The one thing we do know is that ADQ, which is an investment company in in Abu Dhabi. Um, they will be the ones supporting these earthquake bonds, but in in what format they come, so whether they were conventional bonds or sukuk, which are Islamic instruments um that's not been been revealed um It's a question that syndicate bankers who who have worked on Turkey's bonds on sukuk in the past few years they're they're wondering themselves. I spoke to one yesterday who said you know they're not sure whether it would be conventional or sukuk. It'd be interesting to know what they choose I mean sukuk would be a natural um path to go down because. Um, the UAE is a Muslim country and the Sukuk market is very developed there um, and Sukuk that have been issued by Middle Eastern issuers this year have, have done really well. They've got huge demand um, and Turkey, Sukuk last year, for example, they they drew big books as well. Um, so investors are very keen on them. But at the same time, Turkey does have plans to continue issuing Sukuk as part of its regular funding. So the syndicate banker I spoke to did express concern about cannibalization of demand if they were doing both concurrently, so Earthquake Sukuk and Regulus Sukuk, um, but so yeah, there, there is no real clarity on, on how they'll go about that, whether it'll be a public bond, so ADQ anchoring it and then opening up the book to other foreign investors, or if it was just privately placed with ADQ, it's not clear at the moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's another sort of fascinating twist in sort of Turkey as an investment case, isn't it? Um, but it's not the, not the only thing to have uh, happened of note since the election, is it? Uh, because the central bank of the Republic of Turkey, I mean, one of the criticisms of Erdogan has been uh, interference in the central bank's independence and his sort of unorthodox uh, approach to tackling inflation, like to, uh, namely cutting interest rates when everyone else is trying to put them up to, to combat inflation. Um, Tell us how that's gone since the election, because I guess people's fears may have been somewhat dispelled um, that it would be more of the same since then. Would that be fair to say?
3: Yes. Uh, He started by appointing a new governor of the central bank, um, Hafiza Gaya Erkan, who um, that was well received. She is firstly the first female head of the Turkish central bank, um, but she's also well-regarded as, as an orthodox and competent policymaker. So that cheered investors, um, as did the appointment of, of Mehmet Simsek as finance minister, who held the role a few years ago and, and like Erkan, is is uh, held in, in high regard by the international community. Um, so that suggested that Erdogan might be doing a U-turn on his um, insistence that they keep infl- uh, interest rates low to, to fight inflation. And last month, they had their first meeting, the central bank um, had their first meeting since the election. And they did raise interest rates from 8% to 15%. And then yesterday, they had another central bank meeting where they raised them to 17.5%. And on the face of things, that would sound like Erdogan was was walking the walk as, as, it, as, it, as you could say. Um, but it's underwhelmed and I think investors want more. They want investment uh, interest rates to go higher. Um, we heard back during the election that some investors want them to be t- 25% to 30% and two analysts I spoke to yesterday said, you know, it's it's not enough. Um, and so I think the the, the the two fears that investors now have is that even if Shimsek and Erkan do have a modicum of independence, unlike their predecessor, it's it's not enough for them to do what they need to do. What's happening to the currency uh the lira has slid massively since the election um which mm. investors now have said it needed to do because it, it was well below 20 lira to the dollar before the election and, and a big reason for that was because the government was spending a lot of money propping it up um mm. and since the election they have allowed it to slide they've stopped their support measures um which which was what something that investors wanted but unfortunately if if, investors, if, if the central bank doesn't raise interest rates as much as the international community wants, it's the lira that is going to bear the brunt. And one analyst has forecast that it could, could hit 30 lira to the dollar quite soon. And at the moment, it's around 27.
1: And one thing we always care about at Global Capital is a borrower's access to uh, capital markets. Now, how, how has this affected um, Turkey's chances of raising its remaining $4 billion worth on their markets?
3: Well, it's quite remarkable in Turkey because even through all the troubles they've had in the past couple of years, they've never really—at least the sovereign hasn't really lost market access. It's—it's it's managed to hit its its funding target of eleven billion dollars last year, for example. So, um, in terms of market access, they never really lost it, apart from you know a few occasions when the whole market was shut. Um, and at the moment, their bonds are rallied. The, Many of them are trading at or close to par. Um, some of them are above par. So the yields are down at levels below 10% on, on most of their bonds that mean that mean the pricing, whilst high, it wouldn't be prohibitively high. Um, and investors do and do want and are expecting another issuance from Turkey this year. As, as mentioned before, they do still have $2.5 billion left to do as part of their regular funding. So they will need to come at some point um and investors want them to so yeah it, it's an opportune moment for them to do so
2: George do you get any sense that some of the investors that were very negative about Turkey in in their in their comments to you basically and we're saying sort of we we disinvested a while ago because of the wacky economic policy and so on and do you are any of them you know ready to come back and buy Turkey bonds
3: again I think they are but cautiously, because as the central bank has proved Mm. this week, whilst there's been a lot of talk in Turkey and and outside that they're going to start doing the right thing and try and fix all the problems that they have, most of which are of their own creation. Um, the central bank this week proved that yes, while they, they might do some things to try and fix the economy, it's not going to be plain sailing. And even if they did, it's going to take a long, long time, Mm. years and years for Turkey's economic problems to, to be. To completely go away, it's it's not something that can be fixed overnight. So, it, it it's cautious optimism at best, I think, from from foreign investors.
1: It does raise the question: Who's actually been buying all this uh, all this debt? If there have been uh, an absence of the traditional foreign investors, and do we have any sort of sense that uh, sense of timing of when Turkey might do its next bond? There's, there's always a borrower that kind of surprises, I guess, with its timing, or certainly you know with the with the strength of the deals that it seems to do in the primary market, it would be, you know, uh, to my mind, I, I would not be surprised if um, Turkey came out on Monday and, and you know, did a mm. tightly priced yeah. debt sale of some sort. But um, of course, it's, you know, getting on towards the middle of summer when people are generally uh, a bit more cautious about doing deals. Um, has anyone given any clue as to when they would expect Turkey to next bring a
3: bond? I think, as you say, they, they have a, a, a well flagged ability to pick their timings very well um, to issue on markets, they, they always get you know the top of the wave rather than the bottom. Um, in terms of coming in the next week or two, it's unlikely next week the, the US Federal Reserve is meeting, which um, bankers we've spoken to all week have said, we will shut the window. Um, and then as, uh, as, as mentioned, then we're getting into August, which traditionally issuance drops. Um, for various reasons. So I think it would probably be unlikely in the next month or two. However, I wouldn't rule it out. Um, But I think September would be the earliest probably.
2: So uh, turning to George Smith, um, your story this week has a picture of what looks like an IKEA warehouse on it. Um, So
0: why is that? Yeah, so this is a story about commercial mortgage-backed securities and the, the European market specifically. CMBS as it's called. Uh, And there hasn't been any deals in this market since May 2022. So every time I've spoken to anyone about it, they've been like, yeah, it's on ice. We can't see any deals coming anytime soon. But we do have what looks very likely to be the first deal. Uh, It's specifically in the logistics sector, which is why we have the ikea-like picture
1: (laughs) yeah i mean commercial property there's a lot been said about it in recent months as a a fairly perilous place to put your money um but of course there's there's cmbs and then there's cmbs isn't there i mean there's different types of property uh that back these securitizations can you sort of give us a flavor of what different types of cmbs there are and why perhaps this one is probably the the right sort of deal to reopen a market with
0: yeah so i think there's generally seen as being kind of three categories with maybe some smaller subcategories and things that don't miscellaneous bits, but retail, office and logistics are the kind of three big categories. Uh, And as I said, this is a logistics deal. Logistics is seen really as a very kind of strong sector relative to the other two at least. you know, one investor said to me, he he wasn't. He was fairly confident that would be strong. He said, "Just think about it. How many Amazon packages have you had delivered in the last week?" Um, and that that compares to <laughs> Office, or not which, delivered. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Office, which has had its own pretty well documented struggles in retail, both of which have really kind of suffered, I guess, from the structural shifts caused by the pandemic that commercial real estate has gone through while it would seem like logistics has been the the beneficiary of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's visible. I um, often on my, my ride home from uh, work uh, back home, I go through East London and then over the QE2 bridge at Dartford and then down the M2. And um, the reason why this is pertinent is because they're, about 20 years ago, maybe slightly longer, there was a huge uh, shopping centre opened up just off the m2 in kent called blue water uh, mm. and it was like the biggest in europe and it takes about six years to walk around the thing and it's a real pain of the neck <laughs> and now uh, a lot of the shops or the units are empty and they can't rent them but um whereas that was very exciting for me to sort of go and visit as a sort of 18 year old or whatever now when i i come over the bridge what you can see instead is this absolutely whacking great Sainsbury's distribution center of around the same size, just at the foot of the bridge. I mean, this thing is absolutely mm. huge. It's like some sort of mm. cathedral of a warehouse. And these are popping up all over the UK next to motorways and so on. And these are the kinds of buildings, uh, that CMBS is sort of helping to, to fund, isn't it? Well, and, um, and, you know, I'm sure most people who listen to this podcast will be well aware of the, um, you know, pells of. Of office life uh, since they've uh, been since the pandemic, so it's I guess I guess the sort of physical evidence is there as to why these logistics deals are why they might sort of seem obscure because we don't necessarily get to experience them directly ourselves. You know, they are becoming a critical part of um, infrastructure, aren't they?
0: Yeah, and I think I mean one thing which people kind of talk about more as like a a dream, I guess than a or uh, uh, something that will become a reality anytime soon is these kind of transitional financing deals. Um, and that's where the CRE CLO comes in, commercial real estate collateralized loan obligation, um, which is for those kind of more dynamic uh, assets where you can swap things in and out, convert things from use to use. Like if you were taking a shopping center and converting it to a warehouse, that kind of financing might be the preferred option though it's not an asset class that's taken off in europe i think there's been one deal and it was a static deal so it didn't benefit from the kind of uh the dynam- dynamism which you would really be hoping for from your CRE CLO.
1: and why is that george is that because it's a new asset class effectively and it takes investors a long time to sort of grow comfortable with techniques like that because a a, a sort of a dynamic portfolio of underlying assets is not necessarily a new concept in securitization in general, is it? Yeah, uh,
0: I mean, that's true. But I think with anything to do with commercial property, it's always its kind of own thing. You're looking at a very different type of market to the ones that uh, the uh, say the uh, residential mortgage-backed security market or the kind of auto uh, back securities that we wrote about most of the time when CMBS isn't open. I think it's an it's a narrow investor base. These kind of things always run into regulatory difficulties. You've got to kind of get the regulation right, particularly with securitization. Uh, and yeah, I mean it may just be a case of people needing time or not originating enough collateral. Because you, you you wouldn't want to do a deal spread across multiple jurisdictions, for example. So, but just
2: to come back to the deal you were writing about this week. So, tell us what that is. Who's bringing it? And you know, is it is it definitely coming and so on?
0: Yeah. So it's a Blackstone sponsored deal. Uh, it's I think around 30, uh, 37 properties. Uh, it'd be about about three hundred million. Um, we're, I think, pretty sure it's it's going to come. Uh, they're talking to investors at the moment.
1: And what's what's given Blackstone the confidence to bring a deal now? Because if they, if we're saying this is this is a, a sector that hasn't necessarily suffered in the same way as office and retail, and uh, yet there's not been a deal since May 2022, what what is it about the market that's changed?
0: Yeah, it's a good question, and I don't think anyone's looked completely sure at this stage because we'll have to see how the deal goes to see whether they are kind of right in their conviction that it's open but uh, and, you know one banker said to me this is kind of as, as you as we've discussed this the safe haven end of the market uh, I think what's happened is rising rates have forced a, a huge repricing across all of commercial property and it's taken people a lot of time to kind of accept that their assets are worth less or uh and that process is kind of is kind of complete or nearing completion now particularly if as looks possible the uh end of the rate rising cycle is approaching at least people believe it might be so that is probably enough for them to be convinced that a deal might make sense now it's not as though the CMBS market has massively tightened or it's more that people are becoming comfortable with the repricing. Um, so, George, do you think this is going to lead to other deals coming? Uh, I, think it could do. I think this is. It all depends on how this deal goes, really. Uh, I mean, one banker pretty much told me as much. He said, "You know, there is a few things in the pipeline potentially, but it. We need to see whether this does reopen the market." Uh, an investor kind of said the same thing to me. I think. This is a crucial a, a crucial moment for the European CMBS market. Whatever happens, though, it's not going to be a kind of flood of deals. It's going to be a trickle, a handful, maybe some refinancings. Twenty twenty one was the last kind of year with serious issuance, and even then, there was only about twenty deals. So we're not talking about kind of anything mm. on the scale of like the auto ABS market.
1: Yeah, cuz one of the uh, things you wrote as well this week, George, that I thought was really interesting was about the sort of structural hindrances of the growth of this market because you believe there's a a sort of natural investor base out there for these deals that's, that's simply just disincentivized by regulation from being able to buy buy the product and uh, and and grow the market. Um tell us tell us a bit about that.
0: Yeah, so insurers are a very natural investor in commercial property because they Ensure things over a long duration, and they like investments that match up to their liabilities. And these kind of commercial properties can be around for a similar uh, or a, a lengthy duration as well. So, yeah, I mean, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? It? Be pretty pretty poor having
1: a, a building that collapsed after five years. <laughs> you would. So, insurers
2: are... it happens more than you think—not <laughs> yeah. not collapse physically, <laughs> but commercially.
0: Not well, often. yeah, indeed, indeed, uh, insurers are a very uh natural investor then but the it, the way the regulation works uh on cmbs it just doesn't make sense for them to seek exposure to commercial property through the cmbs market that's because cmbs is non it, it's not an sts uh asset class that's the european the EU's, uh, Securitization hallmark meaning simple, transparent, and standardised. And there's a few reasons why CMBS just doesn't qualify for that. You, uh, you can't have exposure to more than one, one uh, percent on on a single borrower. So if you've got a pool of thirty-seven properties, it's impossible for. Uh...
1: Yeah, many CMBS will be on even fewer properties than that,
0: won't they? Yeah. Well, exactly. And then, uh, yeah, there's other reasons you can't depend on the sale of the assets. Um, Hmm. so CMBS is never really going to be STS. And if you actually think about what STS is simple, transparent and standardized, it can certainly be simple and it can certainly be transparent. But given the kind of small nature of the deals, the number of asset classes that fall within it is very unlikely to ever be standardized. But yeah, Yeah. by nature of being non-STS, it attracts the higher capital charges that used to be called tier two uh, in the uh, securitization or the solvency 2 uh, is, is the piece of regulation that's relevant here
1: and that means that's that's the piece of regulation that governs uh insurance companies sort of capital and their buffers and things like that isn't it yeah.
0: so that means for every year of a cmbs deal you have a 12.5% uh capital charge so on a 5 year deal that's a 62.5% capital charge and right. And that's for AAA notes. For right? AAA the, the, notes yeah. The, With all the yeah. structural protection, all the credit enhancement that you have. Uh and this is so this is
2: basically this is basically something that cannot default. <laughs> the, well, I mean the rating agencies say I know you know, maybe cannot is a bit strong, but it's sort of close to perfect credit risk, and the government is saying you have to have sixty two and a half percent capital against it. Yeah.
0: Um, you would... And of
1: course, this has the rather peculiar effect of funneling insurers directly into buying the buildings themselves. Because um, that covers a different sort of set of charges, doesn't it, George?
0: Yeah, so that's only 25%. So if you own the building yourself. Um, and then, of course, you don't have the protections of
1: uh, a CMBS. And of course, you've got all the hassle of being a landlord.
0: Yeah, I mean.
2: And it's much less diversified, probably. Yeah, and and you, you've got to you, try and sell a, the thing yeah. if
1: you need to. It's um, mm. yeah, very tricky, tricky prospect.
0: Yeah, I mean, I do remember I was chatting to a lawyer at in uh, in June at Global ABS, which is a big securitization event, and he said one of the most common questions I get asked is. How can we do what you're suggesting, but not have it be a securitization? Yeah, well, that probably, it might, it might be a loophole too
1: far. I mean, is there any um, sense that the regulations might change? I, you know, we, I think we all understand why the STS label was created, and that was in the aftermath of the uh, financial crisis, when there's just seemed to be a, a systemic fear. Of securitization as something that you know is far too complicated and causes crises and all the rest of it. Surely we have a, a more nuanced understanding of the asset class now, um, and you know probably a genuine need to to use it to to finance uh, these these buildings. Is there any sense that the yeah the rules might change?
0: Yes, I mean the the, the securitization regulation is under review, but I do not think it's going to cover CMBS. I don't think what we're talking about now has much prospect of changing anytime soon. I think what might change, or what is already changing is kind of what is STS has been like expanded. So significant risk transfer, synthetic securitization um, has been added in the EU, though not in the UK. So that can now be SDS. Um, so. I think the incrementalist approach to securitization regulation is going to continue where the regulators want to be very rigorous and certain that what they're approving as STS is very unlikely to turn out to have kind of something that wouldn't be simple, transparent or standardized going on. and, and you could well imagine they probably
1: aren't in a rush to, um, to give an STS label to a load of uh, office buildings with no tenants <laughs> or, you know, securities backed by office buildings with no tenants.
0: Yeah, I don't think CMBS is high up the priorities list uh, at the moment. Yeah, it
2: does seem one of the clearest examples of uh, regulatory folly I can possibly think of, I think, this whole, the whole way they've treated securitization. But there is a bit of a sting in the tail, if you like, to this story, because Blackstone itself... Um, has defaulted on CMBS in the US recently. Um, those are office deals, and you know, which is obviously a different asset class under much more pressure. But nevertheless, it clearly shows it's not sort a of market where you can just trust the, the name of the sponsor.
0: Yeah, I think that's the well. There was the Finnish um, office deal um, frozen 2018, which Blackstone was also sponsoring, uh, which the the loan defaulted on um i spoke to an investor recently who thought he'd still get paid back in full from that once the workout was done but i mean it was it showed at the time uh the kind of danger of this market but yeah i mean what it does show is that as ever with securitization it's important to look at the pool look at the collateral look at the structure and Decide whether the deal is right for you if you're an investor.
1: Well, remember, there's no better place to track the progress of any of the stories discussed on this episode than globalcapital.com. It only remains for me to thank George, other George and John for recording this episode with me, and thank you for listening. We'll be back with more from the capital markets next week, so thank you very much, and goodbye.